0: We're going to be in Genesis two. Genesis two. Um, if you have your Bible turned there, I, I, you know, we've been doing these sheets. I hope you've kept it, because we're going to be back in chapter two this week and next week. If you don't have one, um, could you raise your hand? And if there, if, if I could get a one or two people, if somebody raised their hand, if we could get them one, if you want to follow along, because we're going to be looking at some words in here that are significant, and it's I think it's helpful to see what I'm doing. So I see Gomera up here. Mary Lee, so if you um, are needing one, just raise your hand. Melissa, thank you for your willingness to help out. Yeah, keep your hand up if you're wanting one. So we are going to be in Genesis 2, um, continuing a series that to me is very significant, um, something I've wanted to do for a long time on Your Work Matters. And, I mean, is there anything more important? We spend so much of our life at work, right, in some form. And is there anything more important? Ask the question: Does Scripture speak to my work? Thank you, Evan. Yep. Anybody else? You need. Okay. Are we good? One more here. Okay. For Lane. So, um, I ended last week with with some big questions the Christians struggle with, and here's what they were: To God, isn't ministry really a much higher kind of work? Isn't ministry a ministry a higher kind of work? And if you're not in ministry, does that mean you're a second-class citizen in reality, kind of in the eyes of God? That if you're not in ministry and church work or missionary work, does that mean you're on the junior varsity team? So you can tell that was made a while back because my hair is darker back then. Um, and I'm going to say, the, yeah, if, you want, if you're asking that question, I'd say the answer is yes, you are on the junior varsity team. So God bless you. Let's pray and send everybody out. No, that's not what the Scripture teaches at all. Um, that was meant to be sarcastic, so... Um, we're going to look at Genesis 2, and I'm going to show you what God has to say. But the reality is, and I've read a lot on this, that many believers walk into church on Sunday morning thinking the people in ministry, especially ministers, missionaries, especially missionaries, like they're the ones doing God's work. Those are the people who are in service to God, they're the people who are in ministry, they're the first class citizens. That those people are on the varsity team and that most of us really aren't on the varsity team. And again, I want to show you that this is a very unbiblical thing. And I find the Word of God so profound, especially Genesis. So before we jump into Genesis, just the question, like, where does that come from? Where did that idea come from? And I want to share with you briefly where it came from. In the West, where we live, it specifically came from the Greeks and it came from Plato and his teaching, which was called Platonism. And he taught a dualistic universe. You could liken it to a two-story house, that there were two components to reality. There was the spiritual world and there was the material world. And the spiritual world is the upstairs, it's the higher realm. The material world is the downstairs and it's, it's the lower realm, right? So that, that spiritual realm is, is good and it's pure and it's noble and the downstairs is evil and it's impure and it's profane. So, that's what the Greek people believed. So, what they, in their culture, what they believed is people who worked with their mind, especially philosophers and poets and the priests who were in the temples of all the gods, they were living in the upstairs in the spiritual world, and everybody else, which was 99% of everybody living at that time, um, worked in the material world of wood and clay and dirt and stone and um, outside or whatever, that, that, that's how they viewed things. And as we're going to see in a moment, this is not the Hebrew and the biblical view of things, but it came to predominate in the whole Mediterranean world, so that by the time of Jesus and Paul, this is how almost everybody thought. And it started to make its way into the early church through Gnosticism, um, so that by the end of the first century, two of Jesus' main followers, Peter and John, and Jesus' own brother Jude, started writing against this view of reality in First. And second Peter, in first, second, and third John, and the book of Jude. It was so important that they came against this kind of a teaching. Um, but even though they did that, and the New Testament was speaking against this, um, that dualistic view of reality still wormed its way into the church. That by the time of the fourth century, when you, you we had a very famous theologian named Augustine or Augustine. I don't know how to say his name who actually promoted this view in the church. We're going to look at it in a second. Let me just say one thing. He has a lot of good, profound things to say. And so because he really messed up on this one, we don't just toss him out and refuse to listen to anything he says. Because we live in a cancel culture, but Jesus is not a cancel culture kind of guy, right? All of us is on a journey. None of us has it all figured out. None of us has it all right. We all have sins that we struggle with. And I don't look at your faults and you don't look at mine and say, because of that or that failure, I don't like that, you're out of here, I don't like you, right? So we don't just chuck the guy out. But when he wrote, he actually talked about and put into the language of the church at that time, he talked about the spiritual estate and the temporal or the worldly estate, that's the language he used. And he said the people who worked in the spiritual estate were the priests and the cardinals, the nuns and the monks, and the people who worked in the worldly estate the temporal state was basically everybody else, right? He just continued that view, um, that that again, that was ninety nine percent of the people back then who, in their belief, if they're growing, if they're in the church, they're thinking they're living on that bottom floor. And this came to dominate the Catholic Church, and throughout the Middle Ages, this was the view that kept being perpetuated for hundreds of years. Um, today, what people call it is the sacred secular divide that the sacred is that upstairs. If it's sacred, if it's holy, it's upstairs. If it's downstairs, if it's material, that it's the secular kind of thing. Um, Again, the sacred is exalted. It's essential work that that downstairs is simply a necessary evil and it's ultimately unimportant kind of work. So this whole view was rooted in Greek thought. It was adopted by the Catholic Church. And then the Enlightenment and modernism just reinforced all this so that today... Most people in our culture live and believe this way. Whether they really say it or not, this is how we think. Even people who are in the church, a lot of people who follow Jesus have adopted this kind of worldview without even knowing it because it's, it's the air that we breathe in our culture. So to me, to look at Scripture is really important um, because this needs to be corrected very badly. Let me say one more thing about this, this whole view of things. Um, I don't remember if I created a slide for it. I don't think I did. I didn't. Um, when you think of religion, religions that humans have created, they have this kind of divide. You can always tell in a religion that's not a biblical religion because in that religion, the people who are, who are the ministers or the priests, whatever they are in that religion, they always live in poverty because you can't, by, by all means, if you're in the spiritual estate or whatever, the sacred, you cannot enjoy anything in the material creation, Right? They always wear clothing that's very dingy and ugly and like rough, no beauty to it because you, you dare not have beauty. Um, the food they eat is very minimalistic, not a lot of taste to it because you shouldn't be enjoying the food you eat. And in religion all over the world, religion, um, the people who are in that upper level are always, almost always celibate. Because God forbid that somebody that's spiritual get married and enjoy sexual relationships because that's in the material and that's unholy, right? So you can always tell religion because religion has this divide. That's not where I'm going this morning. Where I'm going to go is the book of Genesis. And really what we're going to see is that this dualism is totally false. It's totally unbiblical. And it's an artificial separation of reality that God does not make. So Genesis 2. You can open your Bible or your phone um, if you want to follow in the sheet. There's a couple of words in here that are really significant that we're going to focus on today. So, I want to be in Genesis 2, and I want to start reading in verse 4. In Genesis 2, verse 4. So, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work, to avod the ground. Now skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to avod it, and to take care of it, to shamar it, to shamar it. And so this is the word of the Lord. I really want to focus on verse 15. We looked at that verse last week. When we talked, looked at in Genesis 1 and 2, there were three texts that spoke to how we are created to work. And there's dignity in that and value in that. So we talked about verse 15, these two work words, to work it, to avat it, and shamar, to take care of it. That work it means to cultivate. Um, Cultivate being to promote, develop, or improve the growth of something by labor and attention. And to shamar is to keep something, to attend to it, to tend it, to to take care of it. Here's something really cool under the surface of this text, Genesis 2.15. It's a really profound verse. We're going to see in two ways today. There's something really cool going on underneath this. That in the Old Testament, there is one other place these two words occur together. And it's not by accident. It's by the design of God. There's one other place, Avad and shamar occur together. And it's in the book of Numbers. So I want you to turn there with me. So if the Bible's still kind of new to you, we're in Genesis. If you're in your Bible, if you're a physical one or on your phone, it's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book of the Bible. Turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 3. Book of Numbers, and I'm going to read this text, and then we're going to turn to Numbers 18, because actually, I said there's one place, it's one book in Numbers, but you're going to see that these texts are really similar, but they're communicating a significant truth. So Numbers chapter 3, I want to read in verse 6. Bring the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron the priest, that's an important word, the priest to assist him. They are to perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. Give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to him, appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as, in the NIV it says, to serve as what? Priest to serve as priests, so priest is a significant word here. Go to Numbers 18 now, flip back a few chapters. Number 18, we're going to be in verse 1. Again, you're going to see the Aaron and the Levites in this text, and the word minister, because they're the priests. That's really significant. So Numbers 18, verse 1, really similar text. The Lord said to Aaron, and I just see here, I'm, there's... I'm going to skip a few words. Bring your fellow Levites from the ancestral tribe to join you and assist you when you and your sons minister before the tent of the covenant law. They are to be responsible to you and are to perform all the duties of the tent, but they must not go near the furnishings of the sanctuary of the altar. Otherwise, both they and you will die. They are to join you and be responsible for the care of the tent of meeting. All the work at the tent, and no one else may come near where you are. And then skip to verse 6, if you don't mind. I myself have selected your fellow Levites from among the Israelites as a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord to do the work at the tent of meeting. To do the work at the tent of meeting. So we see in Genesis 2 that the two tasks that the humans are given in the field, in the garden, which is what we would consider like normal work, is to avad and to shamar, and then in Numbers 3 and Numbers 18, the work that's given to the priests in the tabernacle is to Avad and to Shamar. Isn't that cool? To Avad and to Shamar. You can see it up here. The word work that you see um, twice Avad work happens in here, Shamar to take care of it another time. In, gen- in Numbers 18, you see Avad twice and you see Shamar twice. It's the exact same job description that were given to Adam and Eve, exact same job description. So here's what it's saying, and again, that is not an accident that these are the only two texts, these numbers, and in Genesis 2, where this word of, these words avad and shamar are used together, because what it's telling me is that to avad and to shamar, to work and take care of, that I, can do it, I do it in the field, and I also do it in the tabernacle. Both of those places, it's the exact same job description. And that tells me that all work is priestly work. All work is priestly work, that it's all ministry. And that's why in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says this, speaking of every believer, he says, you are a chosen people, you are a royal, what? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. The Peter says every single one of us is a priest. And what do priests do? They avod and they shamar. And what do people in a field do? They avod and they shamar. It's the same task. John Orberg, in writing about this, about us all being a priest, wrote this. A priest is sometimes described as one who represents God to the earth and the earth to God. But the reality is, is that that was the original job description of the human race. We were made in God's image to continue His work of making the earth flourish, and then, by our flourishing, to give voice for the whole earth to praise God. All work was designed by missionaries, all work was designed by God to be priestly work. All work was designed by God, sorry, to be priestly work. It's not just professional clergy or missionaries who are called by God. You have a calling. You've been gifted. You are a priest, is what he says. This is not just something that relates to volunteering at church. Your work is a primary place. It's maybe the primary place where your calling gets lived out. Maybe we should issue robes to electrical engineers, clerical collars to accountants, and vestments to auto—I don't even know how to say that word—but anyways, vestments to auto mechanics every once in a while, just to remind all of us, all of us, of this reality. It is that not, not a great quote? Okay, it's not scripture, but can you say amen to that? Um, Sam Humphreys, who helps with security, I think two weeks ago, he was just call, all decked out in black, had this really cool long black coat on. And I said, man, you look like Johnny Cash, the man in black. And he said, and he had a white T-shirt on and, you know, the top of was everybody. He said, when I wear this, he said, the white shows through and sometimes people think I'm like wearing priestly clothes or something. And I was like, how inappropriate because that really is the reality of all of us. That's what we're like. And that's why I say whenever we have somebody come up from a different vocational area that I say, we don't have four or five or six ministers at 12th, we have 450 Because this is a very biblical thing, okay? I'm not just saying saying cool things. That's what the Scripture teaches. And that's why in the Reformation, one of the main battle cries was the priesthood of the believer. They strongly disagreed with the Catholic Church's dividing of people's work into the spiritual estate and the temporal estate. They, They were totally against that. Martin Luther especially spoke to this. And I've got a quote from him that I love. More than any reformer, Martin Luther spoke to this. Here's what he said. It is pure invention that Pope, bishops, priests, and monks are to be called the spiritual estate. Princes, lords, artisans, and farmers, the temporal estate. That is indeed a fine bit of lying and hypocrisy. I wish he would say what he really means, right? That he would kind of just come out with the truth. If you know Martin Luther, this is the kind of guy he was. He just said what he thought. All Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is among them no difference at all but that of, an, of an office. There is really no difference between laymen and priests, princes and bishops, spirituals and temporals as they call them, except that of office and work. A cobbler, a smith, a farmer, each has the work and office of his trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. We're all priests. Don't you love that quote? I love that quote. The Dutch Reformers in particular of the Reformers, they really cried out against the false spiritual divide of sacred-secular. They said no to that whole concept that was common in the Catholic Church. And here's what they said. They said that's wrong because Jesus is Lord over all. He's Lord over all. Abraham Kuyper in particular said some profound things. If God is sovereign, then His Lordship must extend over all of life it cannot be restricted to the walls of the church. It cannot be. There's not one square inch of the entire universe, creation, about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. Not one square inch. This is mine. Doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing. Jesus says, this is mine as my Lord. Um, this is how my brain works I'm reading that quote and I couldn't help but think of Braveheart. Do you remember the dude that was kind of crazy? Who when he first meets up with William Wallace, uh, he keeps talking about my island and my island and my island and they said, yeah, you can work with us." but when you say my island, what are you talking about? And he says, Ireland, it's mine. Because he's just kind of nuts. But that, but that whole idea when he says it's mine, that's what Jesus would say of everything we do. He says it's all mine because Jesus is Lord over all. He's Lord over all. So here's what this teaches us about work to me, that there is no such thing as secular work. It doesn't exist. It's an artificial category, artificial. All work is sacred. To God, there is no secular, sacred divide. That thing doesn't exist. To God, everything is spiritual, everything. And that's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. You do everything for the glory of God because it all belongs to Him. Someone said, the home, the brokerage firm, the auto dealership, the gym, the concert hall, all belong to Christ. Your work in these settings is as much Christian ministry as anything that goes on inside of a church building. Let me give you a really cool example of this. Uh, Do you know, who is the first person in the Bible that we are told is filled with the Spirit. Does anybody know? Okay, Peter, that's a good guess. Maybe Adam or Noah. I mean, think of the greats, right? Abraham, Joseph, it's got to be Joseph. Moses, it's got to be Moses, right? Or David or Samuel or Solomon or Jesus. The, the, Jordy! Uh, Saul, right. I mean, there's so many things. Jordy, that's a great answer. This time it's not the right one, but you're always right to say Jesus in church, okay? So, do that. when You know, anytime Pat asks a Bible question, just say Jesus and you'll be good most of the time. It wasn't Jonah. It wasn't even Jonah's whale, whale, okay? The first person that we're told is full of the Spirit. It's in Exodus 31, 1 to 4, and his name is um, Bezalel, sorry, Bezalel. And here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. Is that not amazing that this is the first man that we're told is filled with the spirit? Doesn't mean others weren't, but he's the first one that's elevated, and that said of him. Because that's how God views work it's all his right all of it now i want to take this a step further and this is even more cool in my opinion so go back to genesis 2 i want to read verse 5 and i want to read verse 15 verse 5 now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the lord god had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work to avad the ground verse 15 the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work, to avad it, and to take care of it, to shemar it. You see that word work twice, once in verse 5, once in verse 15. Uh, the verb is avad, and it's just the way Hebrew works when they make it a noun. So if I talk about I work, it's avad. If I talk about my work, it's avodah. Okay, that's the noun form. I want you to say those words with me because they're significant. So let's say avad avad and avodah, avodah, okay, the biblical word that's used for work. I'm going to come back to this in a second, but the Hebrew word avad occurs 285 times in the Old Testament, and I wouldn't tell you that if I don't have something cool to reveal in a minute. If you look in a Hebrew dictionary, there's three primary meanings to the word avod or avodah. The first one is work or labor. We see it in Genesis 2.5. We see it in Genesis 2.15. It's, it's in a lot of other places. It's in a couple of examples. Exodus 34, 21, where God says, speaking of the Sabbath, six days you shall work or avad. Psalm 104, 23, the man goes out to his work, to his labor, which is avodah, all evening. But this word is also translated service. And it's frequently used of service to God. Many times, in Joshua 24, 15, um, and this is supposed to be avad, not avadah, because it's a verb, I realize that first service, but you know, work has thorns and thistles now, so we still make mistakes, right? <laughs> Joshua 24, 15, a very famous passage, one of the first ones I learned when I was a new believer. Choose this day whom you will serve, avad. And then Joseph stands up and he says, I don't know about you, but as for me and my house, we're gonna avad, we're gonna serve the Lord. We're gonna serve the Lord. Some older English translations will translate avad, sometimes, minister, minister. And the third way it's used is it is often translated worship. Exodus 8.1 is an example. Moses said this to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship or avad me, that they may worship me. Get this, in the NIV avad is translated worship 52 out of 285 times that's one out of five one out of five times it is translated worship and here's why that is so profound to me here's why that's so profound because to God work and worship are one and the same they're joined at the hip they're two sides of the same coin work and worship go together you can't separate those two things I mean is that not powerful that 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 job description to avad is given to the man and woman with the garden and the field, and the same description, avad, is used throughout Scripture of worshiping him. And here's what that tells me, that for God, work and service and worship is a single, seamless, seamless garment. It's all a single, seamless garment. You can't separate those things. Somebody wrote this, for the Hebrews... The idea of worshiping for a couple of hours on Sunday and then functioning secularly the rest of the week would be absolute nonsense. It would be nonsense. To them, worship was a continuous act. Worship and work were seamless in their minds. And this is what we see all through the Old Testament is when I see my life as a sacrificial offering to God, as avodah to Him, my work becomes service and my service becomes worship And my worship becomes work. They all are one and the same when I look at the world through the eyes of God. But here's the tragedy of our day. It's that for many of us, there is a huge Sunday to Monday gap. That oftentimes we think of worship as something we do on Sunday, right? That one and a half hour on Sunday, that's worship time. And then we think of work As Monday. And to us, they're two totally separated things, and there's this huge gap. That to us, worship is confined primarily to Sunday morning worship, especially the singing. That's kind of how we're wired. That we see Sunday morning, we see this as prime time worship time. That's how we look at this this gathering. This is prime time worship. But I want you to know that to God, there is no Sunday to Monday gap, this doesn't exist to Him. What you do on your, in your workplace on Monday is no less worship than what you do in here on Sunday morning. It is no less worship to Him. Russell Moore and Andrew Walker said, and I think I've got it up there, what we do on Monday morning is primetime worship. Isn't that good? What we do on Monday morning is primetime worship. They went on to say this, the cubicle, the garage, the classroom, these are sanctuaries where you are called to worship your Creator. How many of you view your workplace as a sanctuary and yourself as a priest serving in that sanctuary, offering worship to Him? I hope that we'll start thinking that way. You know, your daily work is ultimately an act of worship, and God calls us to it, and He equips us to it, and it doesn't matter the kind of work. And this is not just true of nine-to-five jobs. Not just true of nine-to-five jobs. It's true of everyone. For the stay-at-home mom whose job is 9 to 9, like and I don't mean the 12-hour 9, the 24, right? I mean, it's true of stay-at-home moms, it's true of students, it's true of those who are retired, okay? This isn't just for people, all of this I'm doing isn't just for people who have the 9 to 5, and it applies to everything. It's not just my 9 to 5 job or my studies or taking care of my kids. It's my chores, it's my yard work. Though I struggle seeing raking leaves as worship. Still struggle with that one, okay? God hasn't totally redeemed my my worldview. Um, Just taking care of my family, loving them, Um, volunteering. Um, I know a few people in here who who rebuild old vehicles, okay? It doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter where. It's all work and worship. You do what you are assigned by God. If you do it to His glory, it becomes worship to Him. And that's why Gerard Manley Hopkins said this, It's not only prayer that gives God glory, but work. Smiting an anvil, sawing a beam, whitewashing a wall, driving horses, sweeping, scouring, everything gives God glory if being in His grace we do it to Him as our duty. A man with a dung fork in his hand and a woman with a slot pail, give Him glory. Amen. So, let's stop thinking in terms of that two-story house, okay? Because it's not biblical. Reality as God designed it is actually a one-story house. It's more of kind of a a ranch-style house, okay? That's what reality is. That all work is service, all work is worship, all worship is ministry. All of that is bound up in it. It's just we do it in different ways in different places. That's all. But it's all work, worship, and ministry. That all work is sacred that all work truly is God's work, that all of us are priests, wherever we are, all of us. That your workspace, it is your place of ministry. And your work, whatever it is, it is ministry. That's your ministry. Doesn't matter what you're doing, it's ministry. And so for us, as people who follow Jesus, there is no Sunday to Monday gap There's no sacred, secular divide. We see it all as worship. And that's why a guy I met in Kansas City, who we were talking about this topic, said to me, this statement at the bottom that I love, that the work of the church, the real work of the church, is the church at work. Isn't that cool? The real work of the church. It's you guys. It's your work. That's the real work of the church. So, think of your act, your acting. Think of your work as an act of worship, and think of your work as ministry. That's my goal, is that this morning you'll leave that, that you'll see we're all ministers, that we're all called to be ambassadors. That was our theme of our missions conference, ambassadors wanted. We're all called to be ambassadors, and if that's true, that means my workplace is my embassy. It's the embassy of God, where I am to show His fame and glory in that space. So your work, whatever it is, I think we know this deep in our heart, whatever it is, doesn't matter where it is, that's the place of perhaps your largest kingdom impact. Is that not true? Perhaps the place other than family and maybe some friends and neighborhood, that's one of the places of greatest kingdom impact. So 12th, don't ever think of what you do, your work as second class. Don't ever think of that. Don't ever think that it's secular. Don't ever think that it's um, not ministry, that it's not worship. Don't think that it's... um, I mean, all these things we've talked about, that you can honor and serve the Lord and worship Him as a stay-at-home mom, as an engineer, a factory worker, as a social worker, as a loan officer, that it doesn't matter where you are, you are in ministry, whether you're in retail or politics or real estate, fast food, big business, or in retirement, you're doing the work of the Lord. And it doesn't matter if you're a landscaper, a car repairman, a lawyer, a teacher, a missionary, a farmer, a custodian, an office manager, a graphic designer. It doesn't even matter if you're a pastor. It's all God's work. And it's all spiritual. Isn't that cool? Don't you love the Word of God? I I love His Word. I find it so practical. I love the way it speaks to work. I I love that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 has so much to say about work. And we're not done with Genesis. We're going to spend next week in Genesis 2. Because here's what I want to do. I told you I was going to spend the beginning. It was going to be 2. And I decided to break this off and make it a third. And I'm glad I did. And I'm sure you're glad. Um, I've been trying to lay a theological foundation for how we view work biblically. But to me, that's not enough. To me, the next big question is this. How do we connect our faith and our work in a meaningful way? Okay, that's cool. I can view myself differently. But how do I connect God and my faith with my work? I mean, practically some practical things. And that's why the subtitle of our series is Connecting My Work to God's Work. And so, the next few weeks, I really want to get practical. And I want to give you some, I'm going to take from Scripture, some metaphors or some pictures of work that God gives us that I think we can learn really important things of that that teach me very practical things that when I show up at work, I can do the things that it talks about and I can envision my work that way. And it helps guide me in how I do my work. And so that's, that's what we're going to be doing the next three weeks. And I'm pretty excited about it. And the reason, again, we're doing this and this whole series is because in the end, your work matters to God and God matters to your work. And so that's why we're talking about this. So come back next week. Bring your sheet. We're going to be in Genesis 2. One more week in Genesis. Then we're going to be in Jeremiah. And then we're going to be in another cool place. Um, to find those metaphors, those pictures. But bring this next week if you would, and we want to, to get more practical with all this. So would you stand with me? I'd like to close this in prayer. So Father, again, I thank you for your word. I find it so rich, so real to life, so practical. I thank you for how you reveal not only yourself, but the work that you give us. And, Lord, I pray, again, like the last few weeks, I pray that all of us, when we show up at work, our work, wherever it is, whatever it is, that we hold our head a little high with the dignity that we're created to work, that we serve a God who works, that all of my work is worship and ministry and service to you. And so, we'll we'll show up, like, with that priest mindset, I am here doing ministry. I just pray that you would help all of us to do that. Um, And, Lord, it is the place of the most impact that we have and there's a lot of people that are lost in our workspaces people who don't know you and i just pray that we would all be your ambassadors there that we would display you and who you are for your fame and that people would come to know you and so i pray this in the name of jesus amen so 12 today this morning i'm sending you i'm not sending you from worship okay from worship to worship monday to saturday and it doesn't matter if you're mowing the lawn or raking leaves. I mean, I'm a, you're like mowing the lawn or raking leaves. I'm going to mow my leaves next week, you know, the mulching thing. But it doesn't matter. What, what you're sent to this week is work that is ministry. And some of you, you're sent to go watch the Chiefs, hopefully not as worship, hopefully not. Um, my idol is not doing well, so I don't worship the Broncos much these days. But I just want you to leave here with a sense that you're, you're not leaving worship, but you're just continuing worship all week, okay? That's how I want to send you this week. So, 12th, you are sent...